0: Service to the uh, to our followers, all right. Uh, we're gonna try to develop just a little uh contact list so, in case uh, down the road we, we want to get the group together or if we want to uh, send out a prayer request or, or whatever, uh, we'd we like to know how to contact you. So, I've got a sheet going around here. Uh, to fill in your name, email address, and uh, phone number. Just give me your best. I don't need all five emails where you get uh Just, just one that would be the best email to get uh, email from this group. And I promise you, you won't get any ads for uh, long care services or whatever. Uh, this is uh, totally for our use here. And the uh, same thing on phone number. If you use your cell phone all the time, Hardly ever pick up the home number. Then let's let's have your cell phone number, I guess. Okay. All right. Great. Let's let's have a word of prayer. Father God, we're we're grateful to you for your church that you've uh, brought us together in uh, in ways that we can be helpful to one another and sharpen one another. Mm -hmm. Particularly, we want to lift up the the marriages or future marriages here in this room. Uh, Lord, we. Know that you love to work in families, and uh, and Lord, we want to build strong families, and we care for, for all the people here in this class and all the others that are coming. We pray, Lord, that this would be a good time uh, for building this uh, building this up. We pray for Mike as he leads us. Thank you that you've uh, given uh, him to us for this time period. We appreciate his uh, skills and and uh, and, uh, and gifts pray, Lord,
1: that uh, you would use him mightily here. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Oh, sure. Needs oh. no introduction. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is the class on marriage. Welcome to singles, those of you who may be uh, casting a vision for marriage in the future. In fact, look at the title on your handout. This is The class is going to be called Nurturing a Vision for Gospel-Centered Marriage. If your marriage, and really any of your relationships are not focused on the gospel, you'll kill each other. And I, it's really true. And the reason I'm calling it nurturing a vision is because someone once said, if you don't know where you're going, you'll probably end up somewhere else. And in my experience, many people's marriages, they're just sort of on cruise control, and they're not really sure what they're trying to accomplish, so I hope... In our semester together, we'll be able to tease out what does it actually look like to have a gospel-centered marriage so that you know what you're accomplishing. For example, uh, uh, a year after you're married, you're sitting down at a table, you go out to eat, and you can ask this question, honey, are we doing what we set out to do? But you see, you don't have an answer to that if you don't know what you're trying to accomplish. People that have married 40 years, like myself, It's a fair question for my wife to ask me. Are we accomplishing what we set out to do? And again, if we don't know what we're setting out to do, we don't have an answer to that question. One simple ground rule I'd like to set before you, and that is, if you speak publicly, refrain from saying anything negative about your spouse unless you have their permission. You're not going to hear me say anything negative about Janice because there's really nothing to say. All the (laughs) onus is on me for how our marriage has failed. And I want you to learn from my mistakes, okay? I want you to learn from my mistakes. So, let's start. Point number one, I don't want to go to a class on marriage. That would be me. I find that men, in general, have an aversion to these kinds of classes. So I just want to get that on the table. And let's tease out some reasons for that. Most of us have a natural aversion to this kind of class, particularly men. It can be very convicting, or you might end up envying somebody else's relationship who looks really good to you. Um, a number of years ago, I did premarriage counseling with a couple that I knew from my daughter's school, and nice young couple. Uh, he's a doctor, went to UVA Med School. She's a nurse. And after the wedding, after the rehearsal. The mother of the groom came up to my wife and said, Oh, they're really appreciative of the pre-marriage counseling that Mike gave them, et cetera, et cetera. And she said, You must have a wonderful marriage. And my wife went, hey! (laughs) (laughs) So she wasn't saying we didn't, but she was kind of acknowledging. You know, unless you know the inside of the relationship, looks can be deceiving. So Janice and I have this thing we have going on now where we go, hey, hey. (laughs) Um, Classes on this confront you with the fact that you might need to change. Some of us don't want to change, or we may not know how to change. And so is your marriage a stale pond, you know, a body of water that's just stagnant, stale, As the temperatures heat up, it's going to get all kinds of nasty stuff going on, or is your marriage more like a river? The water's moving, there's excitement, there's trout to be fished out of it. (laughs) It doesn't have to be a stale pond. God doesn't want that, and there is sufficient grace for all of us to have marriages that are more like lovely, gushing rivers. Another reason why I have an aversion to this, my spouse will hold me accountable to what I'm learning in this class, which actually is a good thing, but we have this aversion in our hearts to accountability. Um, who was it? That, was it Rock that prayed in this prayer or somebody at our prayer time this morning as our sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another? Is that what you pray in your prayer? That we have the opportunity to sharpen each other? But a lot of times we don't like sharpening because it ouch, you're, you're cutting off some of the rough edges, and, and we don't like that. But we need it. Uh, another reason we don't like it is we, we, uh, this may require me to become more vulnerable than I'm comfortable being. We have an aversion to being vulnerable. We don't like being exposed. When I was in seminary, there's a, a gentleman I knew who was pastor the church I attended, and he said, Mike, one of the best things you can do for your life and your ministry, is go across the street to CCEF. Do you all know what I mean by CCEF, Christian Counseling Educational Foundation, the, the, the counseling arm, or it used to be a Westminster Seminary? He said, You need to go over there and just see a counselor for about eight weeks to work on your marriage. He wasn't saying I had a bad marriage, but he was saying this is a really good investment of money. Just go work on your marriage. Did I do that? No. Why? Probably some of the reasons I'm saying here might require me to be vulnerable, might have to confront things in myself I didn't want to confront. And uh, the last point here, men, I find in my experience that men typically resist taking the lead, specifically servant leadership. So think of popular television for a second. Is Archie Bunker a good leader in his marriage? Do y'all know what I mean by Archie Bunker? Maybe the younger people don't. Sitcom from the 70s. He was just a first-class jerk. And he treated his wife with contempt. That's not leadership. And remember Family Ties? The TV show Family Ties? That would be a sitcom more in the 80s. That brought on a genre of husband in the media who was a weakling. He was, he was just Mammy, you know, you know Family Ties? Remember the show? Anybody know? Somebody tell me. Okay, remember the hu- the the husbands are just they're just weak. They're manly, canny. So those are extremes of bad leadership. God calls men to servant leadership. And you think about when Eve was being tempted. Where was Adam? Why didn't he step in and say, "Serpent, you shut up. Leave my wife alone." There was an abdication. Of of leadership there and I think since the fall we've we've got these extremes of bad leadership not doing anything being overbearing and of course we see in Jesus the beautiful model of servant leadership okay I don't want to go to a class on marriage trying to disarm everybody all of the above supplies evidence as if we needed any that doing marriage well is very challenging just doing it well It's not challenging doing it poorly. Are there tons of marriages out there worthy of invitation? How many of you would you say your mom and dad modeled reasonably well a godly marriage? How many of you would say you had that? Wonderful, good. That's more hands than I would have expected. You don't know how blessed you are to have that because we're bound to repeat the mistakes we saw in our parents' marriages. For example, you know, both, both my parents are with the Lord now, so I say this with respect. I didn't see modeled in my mom and dad's relationship good conflict resolution. So guess what we had in the first X number of years of our marriage? Poor conflict resolution. Now, that's on me. It's not my parents' fault. But I didn't see it modeled. And it's very helpful to see it well modeled. Marriage done shooting from the hip is easy. That would have been my style. Let's just shoot from the hip when it comes to marriage. Let's shoot from the hip when it comes to parenting. Jan said, can we read a book on parenting? Let's read a book on marriage. And I'm like, nah, we just sort of shoot from the hip. That just doesn't get it done, typically. Or didn't in my case. We think it requires too much work and vulnerability. So there's uh, oftentimes, the sin there is the sin of sloth. I'm not willing to put the work in... Or the sin of self-protection. I'm not willing to be vulnerable the way God calls me to. Those things are motivated by pride. No one relishes being exposed and shown to be inadequate. Here's the thing. If you're going to get married, you will be shown to be inadequate. You will be exposed. So you almost have to make the choice. Am I going to keep covering up this silly fig leaf stuff? And one of the things to think about in your marriage, we won't go into it now, is we will eventually get to it, what are the fig leaves we hide behind in our any of our relationships to cover our shame? The fear of being known, the fear of being exposed, the fear of being shown to be inadequate. Guess what? The gospel frees you to say, I am a colossal failure. I am inadequate. I will be a rotten husband but for the restraining grace of Jesus. I will kill you in however ways I don't be motivated to do that, except for the restraining grace of Jesus. And I have this other point on here, and that is in a typical church, you often find many of the married people want to be single, and most of the single people want to be married. It's a pretty odd thing that people want to be in the condition that they're not. Okay. So it can be a very lonely place. We don't want Wallace to be a place that's lonely for our singles. We want them to be completely included. And you'd be surprised at how many married people come to church feeling very, very lonely because their marriage stinks. Sad. It doesn't have to be that way. So I hope through the class you get a renewed sense of hope and you get some tools to work on your marriages. So we end up as what? Adversaries. If you say, you know, fundamentally my relationship with my spouse is adversarial, we're dancing, we're doing the dance, we're dancing around our adversary so that we have to get up in the morning and do what we need to do to to get on with life. But fundamentally, you know, unless there's a work of grace, your most, most close relationships, unless there's a work of grace, will eventually get to that spot because that's what sin does. Sin, not properly resolved. L- land, uh, lands people in adversarial relationships. My wife would use the phrase sometimes, are we just two ships passing in the night? Meaning, she's doing her work, I'm doing my work, we share the same dwelling, eat at the same table, sleep in the same bed, but when it comes down to it, we're just sort of two ships passing in the night. Like this. That's not what God wants for our. He's got something much better for our marriages than that. And our relationships. Are we just acquaintances? Have we reached a detente? So conflict differences poorly resolved in your relationships. Sometimes you'll just drift down to the lowest common denominator. We're just going to get along. I call it being at a rest stop. Most of us, when we pull into a rest stop, we have very specific goals: get gas, go to the bathroom, maybe get a cup of coffee, and keep moving. Um, But you don't you don't come to a rest stop. I don't come to rest stops and hang out for a couple hours. Who does that? And yet sometimes that's our relationships. We're we're hanging out in the wrong place. There isn't movement towards greater intimacy, greater fruitfulness. We end up being content with hiding and blame shifting. You know what happened at the fall? Adam and Eve had a perfect marriage before sin. Sin enters in and what's happening? The woman you gave. Well, he did this. And so when, when things aren't right in the most critical relationship in your life with the Lord, you're going to have re- negative relational fallout in these intimate relationships. Um, Adam and Eve can't have a good marriage if they're hiding from each other and blame-shifting and fault-finding. You see the self-protection, don't you? And he- he- here- here's the thing about the fall. We're no longer in paradise toto. And that means in our heart of hearts, we know that if, if, if you saw me as I really am, you would reject me. And so we, we develop these strategies of hiding from each other. Maybe we don't even know we're doing it. Maybe it's a subconscious thing. But you can't have healthy relationships if you're living out of fear of being exposed, fear of being known, Fear of being shown to be inadequate. You might talk a good talk, but the proof is how does the other person feel? One of my goals for my marriage is that Janice would feel like the most cherished woman in the world. Is that a legitimate goal? Now, I am not saying that I am responsible for her happiness. I believe Jesus is responsible for her happiness, and she's responsible to find her greatest sense of fulfillment as a woman in her relationship with Jesus. Having said that, I believe that what frames the way I treat her is that at the end of the day, she feels like, oh, I feel like the most cherished woman in the world. And if, you know, Mike were to fly off to the moon or something, I would lose that sense of being cherished. So think about this. What are you doing in your relationships? Maybe singles with friends, married couples. What are you doing in your relationships that make the other person feel cherished? One of the things I tell young couples when I'm doing Primaries counseling is make a point to pray with and for each other every day. So what, what happens if you're doing that? So Now I'm going to give you a chance to speak. What does that create? Praying with each other, for each other, out loud. What, what does that sort of create? What does that do? Eileen? Intimacy. Intimacy. Okay. Do you want to elaborate at all on that? There's something really special about praying. praying his heart for you, you know what his heart for you is. That's pretty intimate, isn't it? What else does praying for each other do, or create? It removes fig leaves. Okay. I Good. mean, it, it, it helps you practice
0: being vulnerable and honest Good. before each other.
1: Good. So there's two kinds of prayers. There's the, Lord, Lord, keep our daughter safe as she drives back to Atlanta. Okay, that's, we're actually praying that today. She's driving back to get back to church today, right? Keep our daughter safe. That doesn't require a lot of vulnerability on our parts, does it? But Lord, help me with my fears. Help me battle this besetting sin. Help me with this. Oh my goodness, I've just exposed myself. And guess what? She probably sees that stuff in anyway. me. I, she, she knows me probably better than myself. So prayer keeps a level playing field. And can I confess to you, there's been times I knew I was supposed to get out of the chair, go up. Usually Janice, when she was teaching school, she got up at 5 a.m. She got up before me. She went to bed before me. So our routine was i go up, lay down next to her. The dog was with us. We prayed and I went back down and finished my evening. She'd always say, have a good night. <laughs> now that she's retired, we spend much more time together with you. Anyway, but I, can I confess to you, there's times when we weren't right here emotionally, and I'd let her go up and I wouldn't pray. I'd just sit there and keep watching the sports on the TV, knowing I was sinning. But what was keeping me from doing that? There was just some, something wasn't right between us, and it sort of felt like a phony. Well, I should have busted through that barrier and asked Jesus for grace. And if there was something right between us, then we need to settle that so then we can pray together. Peter warns men, if you don't live with your wives in an understanding way, your prayers will be hindered. I can't tell you how many times I've left home to go out and save the world as a minister, and I knew things weren't right with Janice, and that verse has come to my mind by the Holy Spirit. You know, your prayers for your minister are going to be hindered because the most fundamental relationship in your life isn't right. I, don't you love the way God makes things be in his economy? Why does he want some minister out there helping other people with their marriage when he stinks? God doesn't want that. I, I just love that about the Lord. So, um, pray for each other, and we're down here to, again, does that make sense? My goal is that, and one of the, what's one of the ways I can make Janice feel cherished? The way I pray for her. And guess what? After 25 years of doing this, is it pretty much the same prayer? Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. So here's the good news. There's one who can bring us out of hiding, who can help us and heal us, and that's Jesus. So this is nothing like marriage to show you how desperate you are for Jesus or any close relationships. You're desperate for Jesus to show up or you're not going to accomplish what he wants for your relationship. Moving on to B, why I flunked Marriage 101. Summary, too much pride, too little humility. That's why I flunked Marriage 101. Too much pride, too little humility. Pride, I think everything's fine. We don't need counseling. I'm self-assured. I know how to pull this off. My wife will come to see the light eventually. That's how pride thinks. Humility thinks this way. Of course we could use work on ways to grow our relationship. Of course we could. Whoever arrived at that place of having a perfect marriage. Pride says, I don't need to change. Humility says, I need to change more than my spouse. So sooner or later, you're going to have your first fight. Here's what our first fight was about. When do you do the dishes? So I was raised in a home with my mom, was a tomboy. She raised three boys. When we finished dinner, she said, go outside, enjoy the daylight, go play sports. So we go across the street and play softball. We'll do the dishes later. That's how I was raised. It's not a right or a wrong thing. It's just how I was raised. Janice was raised where no one goes anywhere until the last crumb is off the table. That's how she was raised. Kind of the complete opposite. So we're sitting down at our little apartment at UVA, married student housing. We finished dinner. I've met this guy. We're going to go out and play Frisbee golf in the, in the married student complex shooting our Frisbees at the dumpsters, and Janice is like, I'm like, as soon as dinner's done, I'm out the door. No way. We have to do the dishes. So that's our big fight. When do you do the dishes? Yeah, you laugh now because it sounds so stupid. But I brought one expectation of doing the dishes to the marriage. She brought another one. Which is the right way? The share it way. Pride. Pride. A lot of pride, beloved hate to tell you how much pride. Flipping the page, pride says I'm more bothered by my spouse's sin than my own. What do you think humility says without looking at the answer? What do you think humility would say? My logs are a much greater problem in our marriage than her specs. Pride says my marriage lacks a clear vision of of what we're trying to accomplish so we end up accomplishing nothing. Humility says we will keep examining how we are pursuing God's vision for our relationship. Pride says, I'm unaware or unconcerned about the effect I have on my spouse, the ways she experiences me negatively. So your spouse does experience you in some negative ways. Do you know what those are? If you don't, you've got work to do. You need to just ask your spouse, how do you experience me negatively? And I want to change those things. Um, a number of years ago, I realized, um, well, Janice graciously pointed it out, that I was on track to be a grumpy old man, meaning <coughs> complaining, whining, and I'm not over this yet. There's, there's things that there are to complain about in a fallen world, right? And I said, honey, I don't want you growing old with a complainer. Help me with this. Please help me. And she's so patient, so gracious, so like, you know, that person's going slow in the left lane and you go right up on their bumper. That's effective, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and she'll just graciously say, Honey, I don't think that's going to make the person go any faster. Just, she's so patient with me. But anyway, humility wants to know, how do you How do I impact you in ways that aren't pleasant for you? That's what humility wants to know. Pride doesn't give a rip. So that might be one assignment. Ask each other that. Um, Number six, pride. I'm not self-consciously battling my innate self-centeredness. Humility, I'm praying earnestly to grow in humble other-centeredness. Back in, the, uh, back in the 90s, I was addicted to pick up basketball. I was working in Charlottesville, and four days a week I would go up to uh, basketball rec center at UVA and pick up basketball. The only reason I didn't was do it five days a week is we had staff meeting on Wednesdays, or I would have been there five days a week. I was addicted. And at that point, if, if you said to me, I'm going to take basketball out of your life, i said, well, then I'm going to die. So this is week in and week out, right? Man's home raising the kids. I'm at work, scooting over to do my pickup basketball. Years and years of this. So one day, she says, could I have this Friday to go have lunch with my friends? And that meant me giving up Friday playing basketball my lunchtime. Didn't want to do it. Utter, unadulterated selfishness. How could I not want to give up one day of basketball to serve my wife who's home raising our kids and all this can you Can you believe that? Just, it's hard to believe saying it, but it's true. Seven, pride. I don't like conflict, so I will avoid resolving it or smother the other person. Humility says conflict is inevitable, so let's resolve it for our health and growth. Eight, pride, criticism is threatening. I'm insecure, so I'll leave no space for it. Humility, anything is worth helping me become more like Jesus. A number of years ago, I remember we were walking in our neighborhood, and, and we were probably disagreeing about something. And, and Janice said, basically, Mike, it's, it's not always a safe place to disagree with you. And so what was she exposing? The need in me to be what? to be right. Just this need to be right. And so what's underneath that? An insecurity that if I'm wrong then my world falls apart. So that was a wake-up call. And are you with your spouse or your close relationships, your roommates in college and whatnot, are you creating a space where it's safe to be disagreed with? Okay? Okay. One thing I tell couples when I do pre-marriage counseling is there's no scoreboard in heaven of how many arguments you want. There's no scoreboard. And I think we, I think, we think there is. And so if you're, a driv- if you're a personality driven by the need to be right, there's a sense that somebody's keeping score and I'm going to come out on top. There's no scoreboard in heaven. The only thing that's being counted in heaven is what? is how humble you are. And humble people are willing to say, I may not be right on this one. I do tell couples, sometimes in a relationship, the man or the woman has the gift of discernment or the gift of wisdom, and they have the ability to come more quickly to see how decisions or things should be solved in the other person. Okay? <laughs> Somebody has that gift. They just have the ability to see and understand. I tell that person in a relationship, That's fine. Embrace that gift. That's a blessing to that relationship. But, be willing to to push pause and wait for the other person to come along. Wait for the other person to come along. You'll find that in every relationship, there's a continuum of many different issues where one of you is here, one of you is here. So, my relationship, I'm people-oriented. Janice is task-oriented. So when she's on task, do you know what I mean by on task? Here's on task. We're getting ready to go on vacation. She's getting everything ready, getting all the stuff out of the attic, all the right? She's got this glorious checklist of what we need to get there, and we have everything we need. I'm not thoughtful enough to think through that stuff. When Janice is on task, I feel like maybe I'm invisible. <laughs> now, I'm not criticizing her. What I'm saying is, if I'm at that moment demanding that, hey, why don't you stop and recognize me, that's really kind of stupid because she needs to get the stuff ready for vacation. But all this to say, there's a lot of different continuums in your relationships where you're one way and your spouse is the other. Very concrete. Very intuitive. Some like the car warm, some like the car cold. That's why GMC developed these dual air conditioner things in cars, right? (laughs) Many things in your relationship where you see it differently. So which is it? Is it look before you leave or he who hesitates is lost? Which is it? Well, oftentimes you need wisdom to know. Hey, is this the time where Mike's way is probably the better way? and Janice needs to yield, or is this the time her way is the better way, and I need to yield? Humility stops and asks that question, and it says, you know, I could be wrong on this. Help me. And so God's design, right, surprise, surprise, I'm really different than my spouse. Shocking. God's design is that who I am here on this continuum, is who Janice is, is to pull me more this way. I'm not going to be totally different as a person, that I'm going to become more like Christ, who is the perfect embodiment of all of these differences. So you need your spouse's differences to make you more like Jesus. And humility celebrates those differences rather than, begins, rather than disdains them. You know you're in trouble when some of these fundamental differences irritate you to the point of disdain. And I've been there And great freedom comes, and more joy and peace when you appreciate those differences. All right, let's move on to reasons to make your marriage work. What do you think is the best reason, most important reason? Terry? Huh? Because it's the right
0: thing to do before God.
1: Yeah, the glory of God. Incidentally, do we have enough handouts? It's 10 o'clock, good. Do we have enough handouts? Good, because I have a blank over here if we need to make more. Okay. Um, The best reason to work on your marriage is the glory of God. Your unity, just as Jesus prays in John 17, he prays that we are one because he and the Father are one. Your unity in your marriage mirrors something of the unity of the Godhead. So the reason I hope you're in the class is there's so much at stake. God being glorified in the way we do relationships. Your love, sacrificial love for each other, reveals the love of Jesus for his church. It's exactly what Paul says is the way men are to love their wives to reveal the way Jesus loves His church. So I don't, I don't have the option not to do that. It's my privilege and responsibility to bring glory to Jesus, to show in the way that I love my wife sacrificially shows the way He loves his people sacrificially. So is God more glorified by you working on the hard things in faith than you running from your problems? Your marriage is ultimately not about your happiness. It's about the glory of God. And I say this because I run into a lot of detente marriages. The people are just stuck. They're just stuck. And they're not going to work on their marriages. And I, you know, I just, it's not acceptable before the Lord because His glory is at stake. That's the best reason to work on your marriage. The power of Jesus. By bailing or striving for intimacy, are you saying Jesus does not have the power to raise your marriage from the dead? He does. He has the power to raise your marriage from the dead. Or being, are we therefore being silent about the glory of Christ's self-dying sacrifice if we're not willing to strive, work hard, take the risk towards intimacy? And then the wisdom of your decision-making. You are, if you're married, you're probably making major critical decisions about your life. And the only posture in which to make good ones is in spiritual health. You know you're healthy spiritually when you want most of the glory of God in everything you do. You want to obey Jesus more than anything else. You put others ahead of yourself, and you're suspect of your own motives, but you savor his loving grace. So if I realize I'm fundamentally relating to my wife out of my own selfishness, it's not a place of spiritual health. Spiritual health is fighting that urge, knowing I need to resist that urge. Lord, help me with that. Honey, help me with my doubt on my selfishness. And then you can make major decisions with the wisdom and the um, posture God wants you to. Fourth, you forfeit God's blessings. If you're consciously resisting His revealed will, which is having a marriage that mirrors the intimacy God has with us, you may be forfeiting his blessings. Fifth, if you have children. So this really hit me as my daughter was getting over, I don't know why I didn't apply to my sons, but to, I don't know, dads, like, with their daughters, it's like it's more important that my daughter be married to the, you know, the perfect man than my son to the perfect woman. I don't know, I'm just kidding. Is that true for... Uh, yeah, okay, you guys get <coughs> So, what is Laura, as she's growing up with Janice and me, what am I modeling? I'm modeling what Christian husbanding is like, for better or for worse. And as I pray for my daughter over the years, Lord, bring her a man that's just, you know, a gospel-loving, servant-hearted man then as I pray that prayer, the next thing out of my mouth is what? Lord, you need to make me that towards Janice. So Laura sees what that looks like, what, how it's modeled. So I can't pray for my daughter's future spouse without having the integrity of saying, change me to be that person. And say, Laura, I honestly pray God will give her a far more godly person than myself. I honestly pray that because it's the truth. It is the truth. So you're modeling for your children. There's a lot at stake. And then uh, let me just close with some diagnostic questions that might help your marriage. So I'm doing all the talking today. I won't necessarily do all the talking, but I just wanted to set the table today. Hey, okay, what do you want in your marriage? And are you willing to admit you may want the wrong thing? What, what do you think most people intuitively want? They want to be... They get married to be happy... That's not the right goal. You should get married because you want to get sanctified. Basically, marriage is all about managing sin. You manage sin well, you'll have a good marriage. Don't manage sin well, you'll kill each other. Marriage ultimately is about happiness. If, If you are managing sin well and you're both serious about sanctification, happiness will be one of those byproducts. Not all the time. Sometimes it's sorrowful to be confronted with your own sin or the sin of your spouse. It can be sorrowful. But having happiness is my goal is like saying, I want to run my car on water. It's much cheaper than gasoline. Guess what? My car was not built to run on water, it was built to run on gasoline. Marriages weren't. Were, relationships are not built to run on what? They were not built to run on sin. Pride and sin hurt relationships. And there's when you put two sinners under one roof, you're going to get a lot of sin exposed. You either deal with it and are sanctified as a result, or you don't and you kill each other. And so, and so it's, I, I do tell my daughter, and she has an extremely high standard, and I'm very grateful, I say, the worst place in the world to live is in a bad marriage. It's the worst place in the world to live. I know it's hard for single people to believe. If you're single and you really, really, really badly want to be married, it's hard to believe that. But believe me, it's the worst place in the world to live is not a bad marriage. And the thing is, it doesn't have to be that way. So why do people want out of their marriage? Because they're unhappy. Why do people want into marriage? Because they want to be happy. However, that image is developed. So now we see how important our expectations. Those seeking happiness likely won't find it. Those seeking sanctification will. Second question, um, do you want what God has designed for your marriage? What do you believe that looks like? What's your vision for the relationship? One of the things that gives me heartburn is when when my daughter comes home for the holidays and she and Janice sit down and watch the Hallmark Christmas movies. Do you know what I mean? They're formulaic, but they give an unbiblical picture of love. I've just... I'm just really concerned because I want to stand up and go, Laura, that's not what you're looking for. This isn't the way it works. <laughs> Marriage is about managing sin. How well do you manage sin? And just, just, are there any, any, any um, pictures in popular culture that do this well, that show us this? I don't think so, I don't think so. And again, as soon as I say that for my daughter, my guns are pointing back to me. How well are you doing this? Thirdly, what blind spots might you have to sing the vision for a biblical marriage clearly? Um, Why do you think people can't love each other? That's something to think about. What are you regularly repenting of to keep grace in your marriage? You know, grace is this one commodity that always flows downhill and only goes to the needy. Grace grows to the broken, not the self-sufficient. Grace goes to those who know they're blind, not those who think they see. So, Therefore, repenting is the thing that starts pumping the well of grace into a marriage. And you can have a lot of fun in in intimate relationships where there's grace. It is awful to be in intimate relationships where there's not grace. Just awful. And, And you know that. I'm not telling you anything you never want to know. So who should be the lead repenter in my marriage? The pace setter. Who should be the lead repenter? I should. I should. So, look, I'll go out on a limb. No, I don't think I want to go out on this limb. <laughs> you should have the freedom to ask my wife, is might the lead repentant in your relationship? Yeah, I mean, you, look, I'm, you can ask her, and uh, she may say no, in which case you need to report back to me that I'm falling down there. setter, repentant. And what's the beautiful thing? If you have a leader in a relationship who's the lead repenter, where do you think the other person wants to follow? They're willing to follow that. But if, if husbands aren't lead repenters, we're not repenting of our uh, selfishness and pride and our need to be right or need to be in control or whatever it is, if we're not repenting of that, it has a way of just gumming up the relationship. Repentance brings freedom. It brings grace. Freedom. My, my wife, needs to have an implicit freedom when she wakes up in the morning to know if she's not perfect, my life doesn't fall apart. She doesn't need that burden. You've probably heard me use this illustration before, but you all know the the song by the Righteous Brothers, Soul Inspiration. It's got a refrain in it. Honey, baby, you're my reason for laughing, for crying, for living, for dying. What am I without you? You're my reason for laughing, for crying, for living, for dying. What am I without you? Righteous Brothers, 1960s, Five minutes. So I'm driving around the DFW area when I was pastoring there, and I always listened to the oldies station, of course. And the song finishes: Baby, you're my reason for laughing, to, for dying, for living, for crying. What am I without you? And the disc jockey says: My, what a terrible burden to put on another person. Bingo. You don't want your spouse. Waking up feeling like, if I am not everything my spouse expects me to be, their world's going to crumble. You don't, they don't need that pressure. You need to wake up with the freedom to fail. Not because you want to fail, but you're going to fail. We give each other this grace, and the more you know the, go- the gospel, the more you've been at the foot of the cross, you know you're going to fail worse than your spouse. So how does your compassion, I'm as broken as you are, help the other person? <clears throat> How's your pride hurting in the relationship? How's your humility helping it? What are you praying for the other person? Number four, what are three things you could change for your spouse's benefit? What are three things you could continue doing for your spouse's benefit? What are three things you appreciate about your spouse? So that, that gives you a, s- sort of a, a paradigm to begin to work with. Let me close with a uh, quote my wife and I after we finished watching Downtown Abbey, we watched The Crown. How many of you have watched The Crown? Okay. It's a story about Queen Elizabeth and her husband, Philip. And I wouldn't say what we saw. They had the greatest of marriages. And um, you can see the quote at the bottom of the handout. So on the, on the occasion of their 10th anniversary, Philip stood up with this, with, to toast the queen. And here's what he said. When I imagined our marriage in the early days, I imagined two people welded together into some sort of combined existence. Ten years has taught me the secret of a successful marriage is actually to have different interests, not entirely different. It's a funny business. One sees the whole of the other person, even that part of them that they don't see themselves, and presumably they see that hidden part of you. That's just really true, y'all. One ends up not knowing, excuse me, one ends up knowing more about one's partner than they know about themselves. And it can be pretty tough to keep quiet about it. So you have to come to an accommodation or arrangement, a deal, if you like to take the rough with the smooth. The extraordinary thing is, down there in the rough, in the long reeds of difficulty and pain, that is where you find the treasure. Now, I don't know... uh, was the Crown BBC or something or Masterpiece or something, I don't know, but the writer, I don't even know if if Philip said that, but that's very astute, a very astute observation on there. So don't despise the weeds, it's down there in the cane that you find the treasure, and we're going to unpack why as we move through the class. Let me pray for you all. Thank you, Lord, for your beloved people that have um, come this morning, I'm so grateful for them. You put into our hearts uh, some measure of desire to work on these very challenging relationships. Thank you for the word of God, for Jesus, for the gospel, for the power we receive to be something different than our sinful selves leave us being. Thank you that you rescue us from ourselves. And uh, so I pray for them. I pray for hope, for encouragement. I pray for courage, even for myself, to be uh, what I need to be for my wife. And uh, for for the for those who watch and witness, so pour out your grace on these precious saints, in Jesus' name, Amen.